All right. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Ed. Good evening. Um, so I broke I broke my own promise. It's four minutes after seven. I said we'd be starting promptly. So this was your this was your one chance to get here late. Next time we meet, we're starting on time. Um, no. Uh, so, sorry about the recording last week. All, all my wonderful plans recorded. It did record, but then it decided it didn't want to save to my drive or whatever. I don't really know anything about it. So, other than I can, I can hit, like Rich and I were just talking, I can hit record and I can hit stop. And that's about the extent of what I can do. Uh, so, something happened with it. I'm going to record the lesson we did last week, tomorrow morning with the women. So, I'll post that one. So you'll get to hear if I really do tell the same jokes <laughs> in the same ones. If you ever hear both sermons, you ever hear both tell the same jokes? I do feel weird about doing that sometimes, trying to tell the same joke at the same point. It feels very forced. So I don't. They're usually more on the fly like that. Okay, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Thank you, God, that you have given us your son, the Lord Jesus, and thank you that you have given us your word that testifies to him. Thank you that the entirety of your word is centered around him and his glory. And Lord, as we study a book that maybe we would not normally be prone to study and we come across some things that are maybe confusing, hard to understand, we pray that you would give us clarity as we seek to submit ourselves to your word. We don't want to master it that we might be better scholars or more knowledgeable. We want to be mastered by your word. And so we pray that you would, you would convict us of sin and encourage us in the truth of what you've said that we might Walk away from tonight and from every time we study your word with a bigger picture of who you are and how glorious you are and how you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So, we're still in Micah. You're not supposed to be studying Micah. You're in the wrong place, but you're welcome to stay. Um, so last week we did all introduction to Micah. We talked about uh, different things, about studying the prophets, how studying uh, a book of the prophets is, is maybe different in some ways than studying other books of the Bible and some unique challenges that we face when we study. And uh, we only looked at one verse in Micah, right? The first verse of Micah that gives us some of the background information. It's written by this guy named Micah. He's from a place called Morasheth. Tells us when he was writing in the days of these particular kings in Judah. And he's writing, it says in verse 1, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he's writing something about these two cities or really kind of by extension the two countries that those cities are capitals of. right? The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. We talked about uh, that last time. I would tell you go back and listen to it again, but I can't do that yet. So uh, tomorrow... Go back and listen to it after I've, uh, Lord willing, posted it. Uh, if it doesn't record tomorrow, then clearly the Lord doesn't want you to be able to listen to it because it wasn't that good. So um, 
I'll let you be the judge of that. All right, so uh, every time we, we study uh, a book of the Bible or a text of the Bible, we also want to be thinking, okay, where are we in the big picture of not just the whole Bible, but also the big picture of the, of the book itself? And so if you remember last time, we, we looked at this as a sort of a, a, a big picture outline of the book of Micah. Uh, so there's three oracles or three prophetic speeches uh, in the book. Uh, each one begins with the word hear. So hear, O peoples, hear now, heads of Jacob, hear now what the Lord is saying. It's kind of mark off in the book where there are these, uh, these kind of new sections. And then each, each of those oracles have uh, big uh, sections that are about judgment or salvation. I guess in the, in the first oracle, the salvation one is actually very, very short, uh, two verses. But uh, that we bounce between judgment and salvation in each of these. So Micah announcing judgment and then announcing salvation. Micah announcing the, the discipline of the Lord on his people, and then announcing God's mercy uh, that he's going to show to his people afterwards. So, and, uh, so we're in the, the first big prophetic speech, this first oracle. So when I say oracle, oracle just means uh, uh, like a, a speech of prophecy. So that's just kind of one of the technical terms that we use for that. And we're in the, the first big section on judgment. And so underneath that, then there's going to be two kind of subsections. The first is the announcement of judgment. That's what we're on tonight. And then next week on um, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 11, we'll do all of chapter 2. Not next week, two, two weeks from now, because we're off next week. Yeah, we, are, we missed it because of the snow. We were supposed to have three weeks on, one week off, and then the snow messed us up. I know Diane's very distraught about this. <laughs> um, so, and uh, I only have the text there because I don't have a name for that section yet. So stay tuned. That'll be a mystery. Uh, so that's where we are. So we're, on, we're at the beginning of this, uh, uh, this section on judgment, and it's Micah announcing this, the coming judgment of God. Um, so what we're going to do is I wanna, we're going to work through the text it's got uh, kind of four, four sections that I want to work through. And as we go, I want to show you kind of how I came up with, with this. Right? So I didn't, I didn't just uh, uh, randomly divide up the verses. Uh, I, as I went and I studied, I tried to look at uh, how the verses were related to one another and, and then tried to, to kind of categorize them, put them in some kind of order that would make sense to me. Why? Why are these things in this order? Why are these verses go with these verses? So really what I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm always trying to think, how could, I, how could I write something like this that would make sense? If I were to say, this is what Micah is trying to say, uh, that I would put this uh, you know, in an outline form, and then if he were to look at it, he would say, yeah, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Now, maybe that's a bit presumptuous of me to say that this is, he would say, oh, yes, that's definitely what I was trying to say. But I'm trying to do my best to understand it. So I'll show you kind of how I, how I did that as we go. But we'll begin uh, and in, verse, in verse 2. So Micah announcing uh, judgment. Now, these, uh, these oracles may be different um, speeches given at different times. Remember, Micah, uh, 
Micah uh, is, is one of the written prophets. So these prophecies are written down, but he was also speaking, right? He's also prophesying at the time. So people are hearing him. So uh, it's either he or somebody else who's recording these speeches that he's given. And they may be given at different times. We don't know exactly when they were given, but we can kind of try to piece out uh, what's going on. So here we are. So Micah 1, starting in verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So I said that in, in my, uh, in this, whoops, that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I said this first section, verses 2 through 5, is but the Lord coming in judgment. So this is sort of a, um, it's a prophetic vision of God uh, who is coming down from heaven to judge his people. So the first verse, I, I kind of said this, this first uh, in uh, verse 2, said this was, uh, pay attention, everyone. Right? That's my summary of verse 2. Listen up. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. He's talking to everybody. He's not just talking to Israel. He's talking to everybody. He wants the whole earth to pay attention. And this differs from some of the other speeches in the book of Micah where it's, he's very specifically talking to his people. Uh, but here he, he's saying, I want everybody to listen. The Lord God is going to be a witness against you. I think it's interesting about that. It says the Lord God is going to be a witness. So we're, we're kind of in the the realm of the court case, right? God is going to be a witness, and he's going to be a witness, in this case, not against his people, but against you. Well, you here would mean the earth and the people. So it's, so it's everybody. So even though Micah is specifically prophesying and, and bringing God's word of rebuke and judgment to, to Israel... By extension, he's saying, I want the whole world to watch this and, and see what this means. Why would God call the whole world to watch his judgment on his people? Right? It's making a point about his judgment. If God is an impartial and righteous judge, even toward his own people, how will, those, uh, how will he judge those who are not his people? Saying, pay attention, this is going to show you something about the judgment of God. Then verse 3, so he's telling everybody, listen up. Verse 3, because the Lord is coming. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. So this is, uh, this is a poetic way of, of Micah describing this vision he has of God in his heavenly temple uh, getting off his throne to come down and execute judgment on his, on his people. So we don't want to press this uh, in an overly literalistic way where God is, is physically coming down right at this point. Uh, and, and when we do that, sometimes we end up making this text be about either... The, the incarnation of Jesus, or maybe the second coming of Jesus. We say, oh, it says 
the Lord is coming forth from his place. He's going to come down. Well, that means that must be talking about the, the second coming. I say, well, when Jesus comes again, he is going to come down physically to judge. But that's probably not what Micah is talking about. It might point us towards that, remind us that that is what is going to happen. This is probably a poetic way of, of God saying, I'm coming to judge. Right? So, so we don't want to press this and make it say something that it's, that it's not saying, even if it sounds convenient. But I, but I do think here he's talking very specifically about him coming in judgment at this particular time. And we see this in verse, in verse, verse 5. He's talking about all this stuff that's going to happen. And he says, all this, which means everything that's come before, is for the rebellion of Jacob, is for the sins of the house of Israel. So he's talking about this very specific sin and rebellion that is going on at the time that he's coming in judgment for. Uh, another interesting thing that I think is going to be important in the next couple of verses, he talks about how he's going to come down and he's going to tread on the high places of the earth. Um, the high places can mean, can mean two different things in Hebrew. It can just mean the heights, so the mountains, uh, which if, if that's what uh, Micah means, he might be talking about uh, the, the fact that uh, God uh, has to come down just to walk on the mountains. So it's talking about the transcendence of God, right? You see this in Genesis 11, where the people are foolishly trying to build a tower so they can get to heaven, right? They're like, we're going to build this tower. It's going to be so tall. And then what does God say? It's super ironic. He's like, let's go down and see what they're doing. Right? These people think this tower is so big. God has to come down just to see it, right? So this... God who is coming is, is transcendent. But the word high places, the word heights is also used uh, in, uh, throughout the Old Testament to refer to these places of pagan worship. Right? So the mountains and the hilltops in Canaan were places where the pagans uh, would build their shrines and would do their sacrifices. And so they were, they were places of, of idolatrous worship. And if you read through like the books of First and Second Kings, you see constantly... That uh, when, when Israel is in sin, what, they're, what are they doing? They're sacrificing on the high places. They're rebuilding the high places. Then when, when a king comes to power who wants to follow the Lord, what does he do? He destroys the high places. Like these, are, these are things, uh, places where Israel would go uh, to sin. So which one is it? Well, it might be sort of a, a double entendre. He might be referring to, to both. But, but I think uh, he may have more clearly in his mind... Um, this, this idea of pagan uh, worship. And we're going to see uh, why in just a sec. Then in verse 4, he says, The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire. The water poured down a steep place. Again, this poetic uh, announcement that nothing is going to stand in the way of God's judgment. Not even the, uh, the, the, these uh, immense features of the landscape, right? The mountains. Mountains that nobody can move are going to melt under God and, and his coming in judgment. He says, all this for the rebellion of Jacob. All this for the sins of the house of Israel. Why? So these first three verses are describing how, how God is coming in judgment. This, it's almost like a song, right? 
It's poetry saying God is coming to judge. And this verse, verse 5, is saying why. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob. All this is for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, he focuses not only on Jacob and Israel, and actually, I think Pastor Tom may have mentioned this in this past week. Um, a lot of times in, in Scripture, particularly after um, the book of Genesis, when, when you see the name Jacob, unless there's something that really specifically is pointing to the person Jacob, it's just another, it's a poetic name for the people of Israel. So oftentimes you'll see that if you read through the prophets, they'll, they'll refer to Jacob, or refer to Israel, the people of Israel as Jacob. Often see that in parallel with Israel. So here's that parallelism, right? The rebellion of Jacob, the sins of Israel. So kind of restating the same thing on those two lines. So all of this is for the rebellion of Jacob and Israel. What is that? He says, well, what is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? It's Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. It's a place of, uh, that was uh, ruled almost exclusively by these kings who uh, didn't really care about the God of Israel, uh, even though they were a part of his people and they worshipped pagans and uh, pagan gods and things like that. Samaria this is the centerpiece of this massive rebellion in the north against God. That's not terribly surprising, especially if you read Israel's history. I mean, they're always in bad shape, right? They take a nosedive right after the kingdom splits. They're just like, we're just going to worship false gods and we're just going to go for it. But then comes kind of the shock. Right? This may not be what you're expecting. So if you're, if you're living in the south in Judah, you think you guys are in the right. Um, yes, God, go get those people in the north, they're unfaithful to you. And then he says, well, what is the high place? Now, based on what he said up here, right? You say, what's the rebellion of Jacob? And then he says again, what's the rebellion of Jacob? So you'd say, well, what should come here is what are the sins of the house of Israel? That's not what comes. He says, what's the high place of Judah? So he makes it really specific. I'm not just talking about the north. I'm talking about you, Judah. What's the high place of Judah? Not the mountain. What's the center of pagan, idolatrous worship in Judah? It's Jerusalem. The city that has God's temple, where God himself and his glory dwells in the midst of his people, that is the place that's become the center of pagan, idolatrous worship. And think about it, that would be a shock to their system, right? We don't have anything quite like this to compare it to because, because for us, uh, our, our worship, our faith, it's not centered around a place like it was at that time. It's centered around a person, Jesus. For them, the place where they met God, the place where God dwelt was the temple, and it was in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was going to be the center of God's purpose in the world and tried to think of ways that I could, that I could make, it, um, make it land for us. The closest I came to, so you think if, if you consider us a biblically faithful church, it would be like a prophet coming to us and saying, what is the high place? What is the center of pagan worship in Yardley? 
Isn't it Riverstone? It would be a shock to them. They couldn't imagine that Jerusalem would be, would be considered, would be rebuked by God for being a center of pagan worship. Even though if you read again Israel's history, you see that that was constantly happening. It's interesting. If you read 2 Kings 17, which is all about uh, why, uh, why the northern kingdom of Israel fell, and it's all about their sin and their idolatry, the whole thing is about is about how they were not faithful to the Lord, and so the Lord came and took them out of the land. And then there's this really ominous verse, 2 Kings 17, 19. It says, And the people of Judah did the same thing. And then it just keeps going. But then you see as the rest of the book continues, you see as you get to the end of the book, that's exactly what happened. And so what happened to the northern kingdom ends up happening to the southern kingdom too because of their sin. So that first section, verses 2 to 5, announces, okay, God is coming in, in judgment. He's coming because of the sins of his people. It's equal opportunity, right? Both in the north and the south. People are not uh, being faithful to him. This sounds very much like what Paul says in the book of Romans. No one is righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. And then next... Verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 are really then about Samaria. So when I was going and I was doing this, I, kinda, I, I, had, I printed out a sheet that had uh, this entire uh, section on it, uh, for, uh, verses 2 to 16, and I just started to try to group them together in ways that made sense. And so those first four verses uh, were talking about God's judgment, and then I, I, kept, I kept reading... I said, well, verses 6 and 7 seem to go together as well because they're describing judgment coming on Samaria. And then the, the verses that come after that kind of transition to something else. So I had to read through it a couple times to think about it. So I didn't just come to that when I was, uh, as I was uh, reading it for the first time. It took me a couple times. I saw, well, verses 6 and 7, they're both talking about this judgment coming on Samaria. So that's what he, he hits first. Judgment coming against Samaria. So verse 6, Samaria is going to be destroyed. I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley. I will lay bare her foundations. And Micah describes the coming destruction of Samaria. The city is going to be raised. It's going to be burned to the ground. Uh, and he, he describes it in this way. He's like, Samaria is, is all it's going to be is ruins. It's, it's going to be a, a place where you can plant a vineyard. That's how complete the destruction is going to be. There's not going to be anything there anymore, and you can plant stuff there. That's how complete the destruction will be. And we see something of the certainty of God's judgment in this, because this happens. In 722 B.C., Samaria is destroyed. By the Assyrians. This is really what God is talking about here. When he's coming in, in judgment. He's talking about uh, the, the, the tool that he uses to punish his people is the Assyrian Empire. That's something that the, they, the Israelites could not possibly understand. Like God wouldn't use this, this wicked empire to, to, to discipline us. God says, oh yes I will. I'll punish them later. But I'm going to punish you through them. 
And this happens. God said it was going to happen, and it happened. His judgment is certain. The city was besieged for three years, and then it was finally conquered and destroyed. Then in verse 7, we see something about why, uh, something about the sin that, that caused this to happen. Right? Um, all her idols will be smashed. All her earnings will be burned with fire. And all of her images I will make desolate. These are the things that led, uh, led the people astray, led them to, to reject God. Their idols, their images. The word earnings is interesting. Um, that's one that when I first read it, I didn't, I didn't see the connection between that idols and images. Their earnings. What, why is that there? But I, I looked into this. Uh, and, and you could do this too. I mean, I, uh, if you go on our website, you find a, uh, when we did Mining God's Word about how to study the Bible uh, last fall, spring, last spring, um, we, did a, we did a session on doing word studies. And so I've got stuff in there that you can listen to. You can watch some videos about how to use an online tool called Blue Letter Bible to do word studies. That's basically what I did here. I looked at the word earnings uh, in Hebrew. And uh, we found that it's, in, in, in every time it occurs in the Bible, it's specifically used about the, the pay of a prostitute. It's a technical term. This is the money you pay a prostitute, right? And so uh, it says earnings here, but then the same word occurs uh, later in verse 7. Harlot's earnings, a prostitute's earnings, a prostitute's wages, What you have in these three lines here are the reasons that God is bringing this judgment. And they're reasons that are all directly in violation of the covenant. Right? So remember, Deuteronomy is important. Right? That's, this is the standard against which God is judging them. He's already said, don't make for yourself an idol. Deuteronomy 5. Don't make for yourself an idol. Any likeness of what's in heaven or above or beneath the earth or under the earth. Don't worship them or serve them. Right? He also says this in Deuteronomy 23.18. He says, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot, the wages of a harlot, into the house of the Lord. These are an abomination to the Lord your God. So, what seems like it's happening with, with this, certainly we, we can understand the idols and the images, right? They set up these images, they worshiped false gods, stuff like that. But it seems like they also uh, are engaging in ritual or cultic prostitution, right? So you have this, at the temple, you have these temple prostitutes. And part of Canaanite religion, the, the religion of the people of the land that they were told directly, don't do anything that they do, uh, was, uh, was kind of a fertility religion. And so Baal, this god of the Canaanites, was a fertility god. And so part of their worship would be to have ritual sex with these prostitutes at the temple. This is something that's heinous and an abomination to God. And so what does it seem like they're doing? Well, it seems like they're, they're hiring these prostitutes to serve at the temple. And then the earnings of those prostitutes go to the temple. And all her earnings will be burned with fire could also maybe be taken somewhat figuratively because this 
this temple prostitution is actually, and, and really everything that they're doing is in, in some way pointing to the spiritual adultery, the spiritual prostitution of the people. That they're just selling themselves to other gods when they had betrothed themselves to the one true God. Then you have this next phrase in verse 7. Um, she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Uh, it's a bit of a difficult statement. I had to read through it a couple times before I started to kind of understand. I read through it in some different translations as well. The idea here is um, this, this word return can mean a couple different things. Um, and reading through it in other translations helps to bring that out. So I looked at the NIV, uh, which is one that translated it this way. There are several that translate it this way. Um, they, they will return can also be they will be used again. Right? So she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will be used again. Or for, for, for pay for a prostitute they will be used again. That, that might picture... Um, the, the fact that the Assyrian soldiers who came and conquered Samaria they've taken the money they, they looted the city taken the money and gone and paid prostitutes with it it's kind of another, another uh, statement about how this judgment is coming to Samaria Then verses 8 and 9, switch to a little bit different topic, is, is Micah now laments this judgment. It says, because of this, so because of this, because of what? Well, because of what comes before this, verses 6 and 7, because of this judgment on Samaria, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. That's kind of weird. Uh, this is a uh, this is a, a way of talking about mourning. Um, uh, you, you see this in a couple of play, in uh, in Second Samuel fifteen. David is mourning, and he talks about going barefoot, uh, mourning. Or in the, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about going barefoot and naked, a sign of mourning and distress. actually may, in some sense, it may actually picture people being led into exile as prisoners of war, stripped of their clothes, going as, as slaves. Must go barefoot and naked. I must lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. You guys know what that's like, right? The jackals and the ostriches, you know the sounds they make? Right? No, I don't either. I would imagine it's probably pretty bad. So he's, he's making this point that he, because of this judgment on Samaria, he is a prophet of God, is one who speaks God's word, is, is crushed. And then he gives us the reasons why this is, this is the, the reaction that he must have, right? He makes this clear. He says, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make lament. This is the only, the only way he can react. 
He says, why? He says, uh, there's two reasons. One, her wound is incurable. Who's her? That's Samaria, the one who's just been judged, this capital of the north. Her wound is incurable. And two, it has come to Judah. What's it? Uh, it's probably her wound. So Samaria's wound is incurable, and it's come to Judah. It's reached to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So uh, the wound, the word wound, again, I did a little, uh, a quick word study on that. Uh, this could also be um, a plague uh, or uh, something like a beating. Uh, it's, it's used uh, not just of like sort of an incidental, like, I, you know, I cut myself on a piece of paper or something like that. It's used to, to refer to a, a wound that's received in punishment, right? So, um, so something like a scourging or, or a blow that you receive because you're being punished for something. And oftentimes this word is used when God is describing the punishment that he meets out for sin. And actually, this word is used in Deuteronomy 29 to talk about um, the, uh, the, the judgment that God is going to bring upon the people if they're not faithful to the covenant. So we can see this connection back to what God has already said is going to happen. Right? His judgment is just. He's not, he's not being arbitrary in the way that he's, that he's uh, delivering justice. He said, this is, this is the relationship that we have. This is what we agreed to. You knew what you were supposed to do. You knew what you were not supposed to do. And yet you spurned me. They're only bringing on themselves what they knew would come if they did it. He says that wound is incurable. It's unable to be healed. It's, it's, it's unable to be rectified. In a sense, it's, it's permanent. And if you think about the history of, of the kingdom of, of Israel... You, in the north, the people go into exile. And then in the south, about 100 years later, the people go into exile. But the people from the south, from Judah, go to exile in Babylon. A lot of them come back. The tribes from the north, they don't come back. They get scattered all over the world. Samaria's wound is incurable. And more than that, Samaria's wound has come to Judah. I think what that means is the same punishment for sin that Samaria, that the northern kingdom endured, has arrived on the doorstep of the southern kingdom as well. It may well be a, a reference to the, the Assyrian army and the invasion uh, that was launched by, by the same Assyrian army that conquered the northern kingdom. Said so the punishment that God intended for the north has come to us too. Now, the uh, reality is that um, Assyria doesn't end up conquering the southern kingdom, right? They survive for another 100, 150 years or so, and then they're conquered by, by Babylon. But ultimately, it's the, it's the same punishment. The same sin that led to, uh, that led to Babylon, that led to the northern kingdom being conquered leads to the southern kingdom being conquered. It's just by a different country. 
I'd love to spend more time uh, talking about that, but we gotta, we gotta move. Um, one thing to think about real quick, and then we're gonna get to the really fun section, um, is the way Micah reacts to the judgment of God uh, against Samaria. Uh, Micah, you, you might think, is, could be thinking, um, yes, like I said before, this, these people in the north who are unfaithful to God, they're finally getting what's coming to them. Right? He's not celebrating their sin, but celebrating God is finally getting those, those lousy sinners. Right? But Micah says, no, because of this, I have to lament. I have to mourn. Right? He wasn't gloating over the fall of these, these enemies, these people who are unfaithful to God. He mourned and wept. So what you're going to think about in your groups is, how do you respond when somebody that you think is a sinner experiences some kind of misfortune or what you maybe would think is judgment of God? Do you be like, yes, they finally got it? Or do you mourn because of their sin? And because they're a person who's made in the image of God. That God has desired, I, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So do you take pleasure in it? Because it makes you feel justified. Like, I'm not like them. God finally got them. It's like, yeah, and he would have gotten you too unless he had borne his uh, wrath on the cross. So think about that. Okay. Quickly now, which I know you all are disappointed because this is really fun. If I can actually get this to go to the next slide. Come on, what's your deal? All right. All right. So then we have this second section a second kind of big section, but really I guess it's the fourth section of the, the outline. The judgment is also coming against Jerusalem. This is a very confusing section because it's got all sorts of place names and we have no idea what, where any of them are or where a lot of them are and why he's talking about any of this this way. This is very confusing. This is really good Hebrew poetry, but it makes for some tough reading in English. So these next verses, verses 10 to 16, are the announcement of this, this judgment that is arriving on the doorstep at the gate of Jerusalem. And so Micah may well be writing this right around the time that the Assyrian army is laying siege to Jerusalem, which happens during the reign of Hezekiah. Right? They conquer almost all of Judah and uh, Sennacherib, the, the Assyrian king, you can read this, and in, in he's, he's written these annals. The Assyrian kings wrote these annals where they would boast about their military achievements, and they had them locked away in the palace and so forth. And there's reference to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. He says, I conquered Judah, and I locked up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. He says, I laid siege to Jerusalem. He couldn't go anywhere. He was like a bird in a cage. So this is what happens. Now, he doesn't end up winning, um, but uh, he was really proud of it, apparently, afterwards. So he starts 
uh, in verse 10, and he goes through all these place names. And what he's doing, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, he's, there's, this, there's all these word plays in Hebrew. So that the, the name of the place kind of says something about, um, about what's going to happen to her. He, ma- he makes kind of a pun on the name of the place. So he starts in verse 10 by saying, tell it not in Gath. Um, this is just kind of the, the opening line. It's actually uh, the same uh, as, um, where is it? It's, uh, it's in 1 Kings, I think. I thought I had it written down, but apparently I don't. Oh, no, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 1, 20 to 27. It's the first line of David's lament for the death of Saul and Jonathan. And so this is like a, a famous uh, statement for uh, the people of Israel. This is, this is how David lamented this terrible military defeat that led to the death of, of the king and the crown prince. So it's almost like he's stealing, Micah's stealing that line to say, listen up, this is going to be about another terrible military defeat. It's actually due to the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, just like Saul and Jonathan's was. Then he goes through and he says, Weep not at all at Bethlehem Arpha. Roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir. In shameful nakedness, the inhabitant of Zanan does not escape. The lamentation of Bethazel, uh, he will take from you its support. The inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak, waiting for good, because the calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the chariot, the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion because you, in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. We'll get to the next couple of verses on the next page. But basically what I want you to see is that, um, and some of you may have footnotes for this in, in your Bible, but um, like Beth Laafra. Uh, means uh, Beth or Beit in Hebrew means house, uh, and La'afra means of dust. So at the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. Right? Uh, Shafir means uh, beautiful. So go on your way, uh, person who lives in beautiful, in shameful nakedness. Right? So it's the opposite. The inhabitant of Zanan, the, the Hebrew uh, word Zanan means exit or going out. So the inhabitant of uh, exit does not escape. And so that, that's kind of the, the way that he's, that he's playing on all these, uh, these words. Um, You will give parting gifts on the behalf, uh, behalf of Morasheth Gath. Um, see, Morasheth means property or so, something like that. And so you're going to give, uh, you're going to give property on behalf of these, these people. The houses of Akzib, uh, Akzib means deception. It's like the houses of Deceptionville will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Uh, Merashah uh, means uh, like to conquer or to take possession. 
And so I will bring on you the one who conquers or the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of conquer. So all of these things, I don't want to go through all of them necessarily, but all of these things are, are relating to some aspect of, of defeat or grief or mourning. Uh, and so, and what he's doing is he's describing kind of what's going to happen to these people in these towns as they're in the path of this invasion, this judgment that God is bringing against his people. And they're not chosen at random. They're not chosen just because they have weird names. Uh, or they have names that make good puns. It seems like what's, what's happening here is... There we go. You have... Um, so I used a Bible atlas to help me with this, so I didn't just make this up on, uh, on my own. But I went and I looked. I wanted to see where are these towns. Now, we don't know where all of them are, but we know where, where some of them are. So you have... Uh, Lachish and uh, Adullam and Marisha. And there's Gath. Um, there are ones that we know that were kind of in this in this region here, northwest uh, of Hebron. Um, the the town of uh, Morasheth, where Micah is from, is probably about here. They're all in this region called the Shephela, the the western foothills of of uh, of Judah. So west of Jerusalem, before you get to the uh, the Philistine Plain, which is right here. So there are all these, these towns, and, and this is where, and this is a, uh, from my, my Bible atlas, this is a map that shows these orange arrows show the path of the invasion uh, of the Assyrians. So right down here, Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. This is the invasion that came. So Samaria gets conquered, and then they invade Judah. They come in from the west, and the first place, that, so they go to Gath, and then they go to Lachish. And this is the, the way that they invade. And so you can kind of see, with at least the towns where we know where they were, um, that all of these towns that Mike is talking about in verses 10 to 16, they're all these towns that were right in the, in the path of this invasion. So it's like he's, he's giving, uh, he's saying, um, these are going to be the battlefields on which God's judgment is going to be meted out against you. Right? Now, the Assyrian invasion, like I said, doesn't ultimately succeed uh, because of Hezekiah's faithfulness and repentance. Um, but the repentance of the nation doesn't end up lasting. Uh, and 100 years later, they get conquered by the Babylonians. And, and actually, the same towns are in the path of the Babylonian invasion, which comes from this same place. It's possible that Micah is referring both to this impending Assyrian invasion and then also looking, looking ahead into the future, but sort of the near future, 100 years, the Babylonian invasion that will be the death blow to Judah. Then verse 16 wraps up this kind of introduction that God's judgment is coming by saying, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle for they will go from you into exile. At the ultimate end of this judgment on God, uh, or uh, judgment of God on his people is exile, which is exactly what he said would happen 
in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy if the people were unfaithful to him. His judgment is certain and it's just. So I hope that was an encouraging lesson. Uh, the study questions for you are on the table here. Uh, we're going to, we'll get into chapter two, uh, not next week, but the week after we meet again. There's also a copy of the schedule there as well. If you don't have that, uh, you can take it. And uh, as always, if you have questions, shoot me an email or something like that. Be happy to interact with you on that. Hopefully, Lord willing, this recording will work and it will be up. Uh, I'll also post uh, my notes and, and all of that. I've got, got some other uh, fun stuff uh, as well. Like this is a, a relief from about the siege of Lachish. This actually happened um, so that you can go look at that in your free time. Um, so, and then, yeah. So there's, a, there's some other fun stuff for you to look at too. So, uh, all right. If you don't know where you're going, you come see me. I will tell you where you're going. Otherwise, go to the same place you were last time. Good?